Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettigan. <laughs> what are you so giggly about? I don't know. Sometimes I think sometimes you start and I, I was like not ready for a second, but I mean, I am ready, so I don't know. Um, um, we had dinner with my dad this week. Right. Desi met my father. It was fun. Gary. It was out of control. It was? Yes. I heard some things I did not want to hear. <laughs> I'm a bad... Desi's a bad influence, yeah. but um, actually, I have to say, though, it was honestly probably the most fun I've ever had out to dinner with my dad. Oh, really? Yeah. That's I mean, good. I've had great dinners yeah. with my dad, but it was so wild and over the top and mm-hmm. just like out of control that like the store, <laughs> some of the stories my dad told, holy shit. Uh, probably my favorite comment, though, was my dad coming to the table and Desi going, we were just talking about sex work. <laughs> That's Desi's opening line to my father. And then his line was, well, you know, Rachel's grandmother. And that's a story for a different day, which we will be telling about on the podcast. Okay, cool. No, so, it was fun. Yeah, It was really fun. It was, it was good. Times. We had pizza. Mm-hmm. So with that out of the way, I want to thank our Patreon contributors for this past week. Thank you guys very much. This week we had... Drew, the Venus Man Trap. Oh, yeah. Love that name. Harriet, Bree, Alana, Heather, and Sarah. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. So I guess I'll just get right into it because this one might be long. I'm, I'm kind of never sure sometimes. <laughs> it actually was one I was worried about, but now I'm like, now oh, wow, this is really stuff. Okay. So this is kind of a weird one, and I'm going to tell you that the reason it came to my attention again was uh, I had a Facebook memory on Facebook, yeah, and it was from 2011. Those can be triggering. <clears throat> right, and it said, I knew there was a dark underbelly to the song, uh, You Light Up My Life. And I was like, what the hell was I talking about? And then I remembered this whole story, and then I researched it further, and there was even more to it. Love it. So that's kind of how it came up. So I'm guessing... Not many people probably know much about this story. It's the story of Joseph Brooks, who is most famous for writing, as I just mentioned, the Academy Award winning cornball fucking song, <laughs> You Light Up My Life. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing everyone knows that song. I mean, it's pretty famous. Uh, Do you want to sing the... <clears throat> it's like what? You light up my life. It's very over the top. So he's the man who wrote that song. And he's a super fucked up guy, and his story is even more fucked up. So I'm going to get right into it, and there's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So Joseph Brooks was born Joseph Kaplan on March 11th, 1938 in Manhattan, where he basically grew up. I think he also lived in Lawrence in New York. Uh, But he was basically in New York after... In New York City. After his parents got divorced, he claims that he began playing piano at the age of three. So he, according to him, he started playing piano at three and writing plays at the age of five. A real savant. Um, as a child, he also developed a severe stutter that, that affected him his whole life pretty much. And according to one of his production partners, the stutter would only disappear when Brooks sang or acted. So maybe that was sort of his impetus to kind of I've heard focus that on before. music. Right. It's like you're focusing on something else rather than right. that uh, thing. 
his brother was also, his brother is named Gilbert Kaplan, and he was also kind of a savant. He created the Institutional Investor magazine while he was just in his 20s, and he was like an amateur Mahler scholar and, a, and an amateur conductor. So pretty like ambitious household here. Yeah. Joseph went to five different colleges, including Juilliard, but did not graduate from any of them. So in the 1950s, he started pursuing a career as a singer-songwriter. He had several albums out through a Canadian-American label and as Joey Brooks on Decca Records. And one of them was called Joey Brooks and the Baroque Folk. <laughs> Sorry, it doesn't sound very cool. But his singing career never really took off. And it was at that point that he drifted into doing um, jingle writing. Oh, and advertising. Yeah. He actually has a ton of famous jingles, including um, one for Pepsi, You've Got a Lot to Live. And these are all from like the 60s. And then probably the one most of you guys know would be uh, Maxwell House, Good to the Last Drop. He made that up? Yeah. And then I think he, the big one was sung by Ray Charles in like a commercial at some point. Um, so way later on, he got like a ton of Clio awards, which is like advertising Oscars. So he was really successful. And by his thirties, he had a ton of money. Uh, he had up to 150 commercials on the air at that point. So I, I'd like to think I'd be good at writing jingles. I know when I was reading this, I was like, fuck, I need to get into jingle writing. I really <laughs> like, I really like commercial jingles and you really don't see them a lot anymore. No. And it's it it like an old me. thing. From that period. They, like, but they stopped yeah. in the 90s, I feel like. Because yeah. in my childhood, there was all these jingles. Like, I, I think the Mentos song is a total bop. Right. That song I was just singing. I don't know slaps. if it's quite a jingle, but the other day I had stuck in my head, thank you for coming to Lowe's. Sit back and relax. Enjoy the show. Do you remember that? Yes. <laughs> I was you, like, why is that in my head? Do you know the one Brendan sings all the time? No. For the seafood lover in you. <laughs> That's a good one. Red Lobster. <laughs> course I have a deep connection to Red Lobster anyways so he was quite wealthy as I mentioned but he really wanted to be famous and like known as like an artistic whatever right like, you know it wasn't just enough to, for him to be a jingle writer so it was at that point that he kind of attempted to break into Hollywood he uh his first big movie that he wrote um he kind of wrote the theme song for I guess was called Blue Balloon Oh, it's actually, the movie was called Jeremy. The, the song was called Blue Bal Balloon, the hourglass song, and it was sung by the star of the movie, Robbie Benson, who I love for some reason. He also claims that he actually wrote and cast and directed most of the movie. And, I mean, people said, no, fuck you, you're, you're full of shit. But there were some people who said, to be fair, he did kind of have a lot, a bigger hand into in the movie than just composing the song. This is like one of the first instances where we're going to see that this guy is a huge egomaniac okay. and really full of himself. So in 1977, he wrote, produced, directed, and scored a movie called You Light Up My Life. <laughs> uh, this movie was about... I actually didn't know that there, there was a movie with this song, like that this song I knew came it from won a an movie. Oscar. I guess I knew it won an Oscar, but for I some reason know. I didn't know what movie it was in. Right. Anyways, it was like a kind of like a romance drama type movie and it starred Didi Khan. Do you know who she is yes. from, uh, from Greece? Yes. Um, so she, the movie was actually really poorly reviewed, but a huge hit. Um, even though Joseph basically didn't know what the fuck he was doing when he was directing it. Uh, one of the film's actors was named Stephen Nathan and he basically, he described him as 
you know, being full of shit, not knowing what he was doing, and a total control freak and egomaniac. The title song, obviously, that he composed for the film was an even bigger success, and the cover version by Debbie Boone reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart and held the position for 10 consecutive weeks, and at the time, that was the longest number one reign in the chart's history. The song eventually went over went on to sell over 5 million uh, copies. And as we mentioned, it won the Oscar for Best Song. Uh, it won Grammy Award for Song of the Year um, and a Golden Globe. Like, it pretty much won every major award. Just goes to show that the Grammys don't actually pick right. good music. When people get outraged over whatever wins the Grammys, it's like... Look, you, you light up my life one in what, 1977? There's numerous times. I'm sure there was a Queen record out one. that year yeah, that was fucking fantastic. So I'm going to just give you a little bit of more history about the song because it was such a huge fucking deal. The song was originally recorded by a woman named Casey Sissick for the soundtrack. That song didn't really take off as much. And Dee Dee Khan actually lip synced the song in the film, this, this uh, Casey Sissick version. But it wasn't until Debbie Boone covered the song in 1977, and she's Pat Boone's daughter, and she's like real Christian and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> that the song really became a hit. I mentioned before that it it, it had the record yeah. for um, most consecutive weeks. That was not matched until 1982 by Olivia Newton-John's Physical, which I love. <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> and it wasn't surpassed until 1991 with... End of the Road by Boys to Men. Oh, that was the song well, that surpassed. Well, that's a great song. And there was also something with like, they had changed the methodology of determining what was number one or something, but it basically broke the record. Okay. Uh, I feel like that song was like number one forever. Oh, like, yeah. I don't know, like a year. <laughs> <laughs> the song that actually knocked her off the charts or the number one spot was How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees. So in addition to all the Better awards, song, in yeah, my opinion. Yeah, of course. And to, in addition to all the awards that Brooks won, like the film kind of stuff, Boone actually got Best New Artist for at the Grammys wow. in 1977, based purely on this song. And it's still considered one of the top 10 Billboard Hot 100 songs of all time. Like they've ranked them. I think it was initially number seven. And at some point it's number nine on the all time list of rankings of these Billboard songs. What's number one? Rachel, don't ask me questions that I don't know the answer to. <laughs> I would look, Desi. I mean, I would have gone a total rabbit hole of Billboard songs. I had too much to do. Okay. I I'm, mean, this is not about the Billboard look, charts. <laughs> I'm not trying to be a backseat researcher. <laughs> now someone's going to say, they don't even do research. <laughs> there was some controversy, like a little bit more controversy. Where we're going to see what a piece of shit this guy is with Sissick the woman who initially recorded the song. Her husband in 2013 actually wrote an essay about how poorly she was treated by Brooks, including like when they gave the song to Debbie Boone, he basically reused the tracks and kind of eliminated her voice from him because he didn't want to pay for the tracks to be redone. He also had Debbie Boone basically do it note for note and in every inflection exactly how this woman had done it. Uh, the husband of this woman theorized that it was when he uh, tried to hit on her or come on to her and she rebuffed his advances and he kind of turned on her and then did this whole thing with Debbie Boone. So, I mean, you could look at it as he ruined this woman's life. <laughs> like she could have been Debbie Boone. Is that right. even a thing people want? I don't know. I mean, it would be cool to have that hit song and get a Grammy, even if that's all you ever do. Right. Who knows? So that's like one of the first early sign where this guy does not treat women well foreshadow 
So post Light Up My Life, Joe was on cloud nine. He was really successful from that movie. As I said, the movie, even though it was a piece of shit, was a huge hit. The song was a huge hit. So he thinks this is the beginning of uh, his big Hollywood career. And he had the ego to go along with that. Right. His next movie was called If Ever I See You Again. And that was about a rich ad jingle writer with dreams of breaking into Hollywood. He insisted on starring in the movie as well. Stop it. Uh, And this guy is not an actor. And as I mentioned before, he had a severe stutter that only went away when he was singing. Uh, Janet Maslin, who was a film critic at the time, I think for the New York Times, she described the the protagonist of the movie as an ambitious egomaniac whose (laughs) immodesty knows no bounds, which seems quite accurate. Uh, Robert Lifton, a former producing partner, agreed with her characterization. And he actually ended up breaking that partnership because Joe was sort of fucking people over, taking money and acting like a huge piece of shit, as I mentioned earlier. Just like another description this guy Robert Lifton gave of Joe is like if you would go to his office his surrounding his desk and all over his desk were his Clio awards. And I told you he won a ton, his Academy award, his people's choice awards were on the desk. So that if you were sitting across from him, it was literally his head surrounded by all of his awards. Like he was no subtle. (laughs) There's no, nothing subtle about this guy. He was also like most narcissists, a total emotional fucking vampire like he just sucked the life out of anyone who had any kind of relationship with him another former colleague director martin davidson uh davidson described him as when joe latches onto you he doesn't let go he's so needy of friendship of support it becomes unbearable to the person he needs another interesting tidbit uh that davidson uh said about joe was that when they would go out to dinner and eat he would order everything on the menu and only take a few bites of each (laughs) sorry I mean, that does sound kind of awesome, but well, I could see, like, as a person, it's, I mean, when it's an you combined thing. all of these things, yeah, together. and it's just kind of like every dish, come on, like, right, that's a lot. I'd be fine with three or four, come right. on. I like a taste. <laughs> if I'm menu. with someone, we could share. Joe st- continued to steal money with Davidson, too. He took money to pay for his own version of a soundtrack of a movie they were working on, which was basically embezzlement, and Joe just kind of ended the partnership. He had several other failed movie attempts after that, and he also had a few failed stage productions, because why not expand your failure into other art forms? (laughs) Uh, He had a Broadway musical called In My Life, which was a love story about a personal editor with an obsessive compulsive disorder and a musician with Tourette's syndrome. So he doesn't really deviate too far uh, from his own life. And uh, in the show, they are brought together by a jingle singing god. Stop it. I know. Someone, Robert Simonson wrote about this and like that it was generally regarded as one of the strangest shows ever to have graced a Broadway stage. (laughs) This uh, play was panned by every critic, including Ben Brantley of the New York Times, who called it jaw-dropping moments of whimsy run amok. Uh, the, the reviews were so bad that Brooks actually spent $1.5 million on ads saying that all the critics were wrong. <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> He's like the original Trump. Okay, so his personal life was not a, was just as unsuccessful as his professional life was going right. at this time. In the early 70s, he actually had a relationship with actress Cindy Williams, who played Shirley in Laverne and Shirley. She was actually going to originally star in the You Let Up My Life movie, but they broke up, and that's when Dee Dee Khan got the role. He was married four times and had four children, but it's his relationship with uh, an English model and actress named Susan Paul that I'm going to kind of focus on right now, because 
you'll see why. <laughs> so he had, as I mentioned before, two kids with Susan Paul in the late seven days they met. So sort of in his heyday yeah. of his fame, she was actually an actress who appeared in all, all that jazz was sort of her big role, but it was not that big. And she was also on the cover of the September 1970 issue, 78 issue of Playboy magazine. So she's like, a quasi ingenue What's her name? starlet. Uh, her name is Susan Paul. So they got married, and in 1981, she gave birth to a daughter, Amanda, and five years later to a son named Nicholas. They kind of lived in New York and London going back and forth, and according to people who knew the couple at the time, Joe was immediately unfaithful to her from the beginning. Right. One of his former assistants said he was trying to live the Hollywood myth of a director, Oscar, casting couch. Some actresses would think that getting a role requires them to sleep with a director, and he liked to take advantage of that. She eventually files for divorce from him in an English court in the early 90s and won custody of the kids. According to Amanda, the daughter, the demise of the parents' marriage didn't seem to affect Nicholas at first. He was sort of a sweet child, and he was just sort of like someone who always gave his toys and candy away just to kind of make people love him. Um, so she she claims that he wasn't really affected by that divorce, but to me, someone who's trying to always win your love by giving things away is really sad and tragic kind of thing that I think a lot of kids do in a divorce situation. After the divorce, the kids, as I said, the mother had custody of the kids, but they would see their dad regularly and visit him on the holidays. When Amanda was 12 and Nick was 7, they went to visit Joe for the summer, and during that trip, Joe sued Susan for custody and refused to send them back oh to London. Oh, my God. He, according to him, she had been mistreating the kids, uh, which Amanda says was a complete lie. Joe even would check himself and the kids into hotels under assumed names and constantly move around, and he hired bodyguards and just mercilessly, like, you know, shit talked the mom to the kids, just like a nonstop thing. Amanda described her father during that period as being a bully and very scary and intimidating. And as someone, I was like in a bad divorce situation where their parents were like that. It is very like all frightening. So somehow, and I think basically because she just didn't have the money to fight him, he ended up getting custody of the children. I think it was hard because she was in London. He just had way more money than she did to kind of fight this. So... Amanda and Nick now are living with their dad in New York, and she said that after he got custody, he became increasingly more abusive toward her in particular. Nick was still young, I think, so he would try to protect his sister, but it really didn't work. Amanda at some point flies back to London with Joe's permission, but when she got to London, she got a call from her father saying that she should not come back and that I um, that his daughter was dead to him. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> And she's like 13 years old. So she did stay with her mom, and her and her brother did not see each other for over a decade. Wow. Uh, Nick attended Horace Mann for his junior and senior years of high school, which is a very snooty elite Ivy League (laughs) prep school, like a total like what you would imagine. Uh, According to classmates at the time, Nick was not like the best student, uh, and Joe was not like the type of dad who really encouraged academic success. I mean, they were rich, but Nick was described as sort of charming and like he was attractive and uh, girls sort of loved him. He was that type. 
At the end of his junior year, Joe rented Nick his own apartment in New York City. So he had his own apartment in New York City. When he was a junior? A junior in high school. And he became very popular at that point because he was holding all these fucking parties and he had his own apartment. And one of his friends has said, at that time, all accountability was lost. Like he just was on his own doing whatever the fuck he wanted. If Nick was anything like I was junior year of I high know. school. I mean, even I would have been like, well, okay, <laughs> what can we do here? <laughs> I mean, people started taking advantage of him too. And it just became this kind of whatever, you know, it was like a good thing in a way, but it also started making Nick, I think, feel a little used uh, by people, even though he was popular. At some point you have to realize like, this is all I'm worth to people maybe. Right. So he still is described as kind of sweet, like giving the shirt off his back type guy at this point. Nick explained the reason that he got this apartment was because him and Joe were fighting all the time. So they didn't have a great relationship either, even though he stayed with his dad when his sister left. It still wasn't like uh, much. People also at this time do start describing um, the dad as being something off with him as far as his relationships with women. Like it started becoming more noticeable. He actually only dated much younger women and used escort services. And he kind of got Nick on the same path, like into using escorts as a teenager. Nick kind of brushed off his dad's dating habits as like, oh, he's an old rich man. This is what old rich men do. They date 22 year olds. Right? Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So as I said, Nick also started kind of being like, hey, pay for sex. That's fine. I mean, I don't care, but come on. You don't let, do you, would you let your son, like a teenager start paying for sex? I don't know. Um, I don't. Obviously, I think that paying for sex, there's nothing wrong with but it. It's, it's, fine. it's illegal, though, isn't it? I think it's weird to have any sort of relationship with your kid where you're an active participant in procuring them procuring sex. them sex. But isn't it illegal <laughs> if he's 16? Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm not talking too? about. Yeah, he's underage. He's oh, still in well, high that's school. That's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That's weird. I mean, there's like, I'm Especially, not talking. It's not a matter of sex work being legal or not or whatever or bad or good. It's to that, me, it's like. You don't pay for a woman who's an adult to have sex with your child. Like, and if you're paying for an underage sex worker, that's wrong too. Right. Yeah. Like, I have no like, idea. The whatever, whole situation, the whole situation, is situation not just doesn't seem right to me. So, but he still had this estranged relationship with his mom. He hadn't seen his mom since she lost custody or his sister. Uh, it sounds like his dad is doing that thing where he wants to gain points with his son by buying him all this crap right, and right. showering him. Well, with- and he knows that it, the, the gig, like, the jig is going to eventually run out because eventually the son's going to start asking more questions. Like, right. Cause he's basically saying your mom was a drug addict. She's unfit to raise you. Like it wasn't just like, I wanted custody of you. He's, he's poisoning, he's besmirching their minds. her reputation. So in addition to keeping away from the mom, he also kept away from the sister. Like he basically forbid all contact with them and threatened Nick with like his trust fund being cut off. If he found out that he contacted his mom or sister And they blew up, Joe blew up at Nick all the time. And Nick was kind of always blank and numb and just always seemed really lost when he was around his father. He's probably terrified of him. Right. So he didn't go to college right after he graduated from Horace Mann. He stayed in New York a few years, but he eventually did enroll at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And there it was the same kind of guy. He was like the fun guy. He would be at the party, very social, etc. It was during this period while he was in Colorado, that his sister found him on Facebook and emailed him. So this is the first contact they've had in a decade. He was hesitant at first, but they started talking. This is when he was in college? Yeah. 
Okay. So they started talking regularly on the phone, and according to Amanda, their connection just started right away. Like it right. had been like no time had had been lost, and it was emotional, but the connection was sort of instant. And they're just like catching up. Like you do this, right. I do this. They another interesting thing is she said that both of them also do the thing that their dad did, where they order as many dishes as possible and just have a few bites. So it's a family thing. <laughs> <laughs> they quickly became close, and Nick actually grew quite devoted to his sister. But he started to feel guilty about going behind his dad's back to have mm-hmm. this relationship. And he was scared what Even would happen. Even though he's a full-grown adult now. Right. But he was still dependent financially of on the course. dad. Right. So Amanda eventually moves to... And I flew to Boulder and they finally met in person or whatever. They've met in person before. And this is actually 15 years after they had last seen each other. Yeah. At some point, Amanda's an actress and she was in Los Angeles Nick visited her in Los Angeles and his mom flew in from London and she, it was the first time she had seen her son since he was seven years old, which I'm sure is pretty fucking crazy. According to Amanda, it was like a very overwhelming reunion that was somewhat awkward because he had been lied to about this woman his whole life and here she is completely not what his dad had told him. Right. In 2008, Brooks suffered a stroke which left him unable to play piano and he kind of had to stop composing at that point uh, without that. I mean, he's already much older at this point. But his career um, really went off the tracks (laughs) over something else. In June of 2009, Brooks became the subject of an investigation after being accused of a series of casting couch rapes. Oh. Brooks was arrested on charges of raping or sexually assaulting 11 women who he lured to his east side apartment from 2005 to 2008. His female assistant at the time, a woman named Shawnee Lucier, was charged with helping him procure these women. According to the Manhattan District Attorney, the women responded to notices that Brooks posted on Craigslist seeking attractive women to star in movie roles, and then he would fly them to New York, uh, and most of them, for some reason, were from Pacific Coast states or Florida, and at, it would be at his expense. So he'd fly them in based on these Craigslist ads, and these women were looking for an acting break wow. and would do this. He was indicted on June 23, 2009, and was going to be tried in the state Supreme Court um, for Manhattan on 91 counts of rape, sexual abuse, criminal sexual assault, assault, and other charges. So he shows up into court all disheveled. He had had this stroke, and he really, I think, played up this stroked, disheveled old guy when he went into court. It's kind of like what the mob people do, right? And they (laughs) act like they're walking around in bathrobes. Like, I couldn't possibly be a criminal. Right. I'm dotty. (laughs) His lawyer actually did use that. His lawyer is named Jeffrey C. Hoffman. He said dotty? No, he was like, he didn't do anything. He's like, look at this guy. He's, he's a mess. He, who, who, he couldn't possibly rape anybody. His uh, assistant was also charged with knowingly facilitating the attacks, which is only a misdemeanor, misdemeanor which is punishable up to one year in jail. Seems kind of crazy to me. Yeah. Uh, she would pick the victims. Like, she would help pick the victims from the ads, set up all the travel arrangements, and then she would, this is, like, where she really goes beyond for me, because maybe she didn't know. She would reassure them, like, it's safe, like, come, like, he's a good guy. Like, so she would even, because these women probably were like, is this okay? Like, who is this guy? I mean, yeah. Fuck her. Uh, And she would even reassure their mothers about, like, who were worried about sending their daughters to New York alone. Like, I mean, this is a fucked up. This is sick. Pretty fucked up. Like a woman would do this to another woman. I mean, it's fucked up when a man does it, but what is her deal? Come on. (laughs) And the prosecutor actually said that he's like, my only regret is that her crime only can be one year. Like, because I mean, it's a pretty, 
That's I don't know. disgusting. It's pretty heinous. And then the 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 prosecutor goes on to say, at this time, we don't believe there was an actual movie role he was casting for. It's like no shit. He right. wasn't casting for. It's like thanks, thanks guys. So here's like basically what his mo was. The women would come out and fly out. He would hand them a script in which they would play the role of a prostitute, and he would insist that they get warmed up by drinking as much wine as possible. Oh, boy. And then disrobing because of the role they were auditioning for. It had to be sexual, right? With some of the women, he would place his Oscar in their hands, and he would say to them, this could be you. This could be you holding this Oscar if you do what I say. Um, another woman who was involved with Joe at the time, but is not part of the women who, uh, accused him of anything said he took a similar approach with her. According to her, he claimed he had a role that was perfect for me. I kept saying, no, thank you. He kept saying, do you realize who I am? I'm an Academy Award winner. This is an opportunity of a lifetime for you. Soon into the relationship, he said, she said that he began to threaten her with violence. He would claim he had done favors for the mafia and he could have anyone he wanted killed. I felt that if I left him, he'd come after me. In addition to the, these women, he also would do this with the, the escorts or, you know, sex workers that he would hire. Now, this woman named Kristen... He would promise them movie roles? Well, he... I'll get into it. He, <laughs> the woman named Kristen Davis, she's actually a big-time escort or whatever, madam. She had Wicked Models Escort Agency. <laughs> uh, she's kind of the Manhattan uh, madam who ran for governor after she basically helped take down Elliot Spitzer. Like her agency was the one that got Elliot Spitzer, right. his uh, sex workers. And she said that Joe ordered escorts from her um, on over a hundred occasions between 2005 and 2008. And sometimes he would order two in a single night at, a, at the cost of 1000 to $1,600 per call. She said that he started off as a good client, but he repeatedly rejected women because he thought they looked too old or he would refuse to pay them after he would get their services. Gross. So she, uh, at some point, blacklisted him. She claims that Brooks and Spitzer were very much alike and probably two of the worst clients that she ever had. Uh, according to her, they both had very little respect for the girls that are working. They are steamrollers who do whatever they want. She went on to say, if I could have sent him a girl under 18, he would have been thrilled. Gross. Uh, she said that she didn't employ girls under the age of 21, but Brooks had a preference for the youngest escorts, and she wa he wanted them to look as if they were not much older than 18. He would always say, I want them as young as possible. I know you can't send me anyone under 18, but if you have anyone 18... <laughs> It's <laughs> like something. It's so gross because if we'll post pictures of him, but he is a very old looking, gross guy. <laughs> Sorry. I can only Sorry if you're imagine. old and gross. I'm sure you're a nice person. <laughs> this guy's not a nice this person. This guy is not, so I can make fun of him. Okay. So Davis would, uh, the madam, uh, she said that Joe would do the same MO with the call girls. It would be like a casting couch role play game that he wanted to play with them. He would hand them a film script that he'd written and tell them to read for the part of his lover. <laughs> Sorry, this is so gross. Ugh. They, the script included them. Like he actually had a script for them where they would have to tell him how handsome he was and how much they loved him. He would promise them parts in his next film. This is all part of the role play. <laughs> and Ugh. if he particularly liked them, he would let them hold his Oscar. So he loved these casting couch scenarios, even when he was paying for sex. Like it was something that really it's got power. him off. Yeah. So it was like he just wanted to constantly play the director seducing young actresses. He would also try to get them to take drugged wine and stuff like that. So I feel like that's probably why 
she was talking about him being disrespectful to the girls. He also always wanted to have sex without a condom. Like that was another thing he always was trying to pay for unprotected right. uh, sex. So he's busted finally. Uh, his daughter at the time said, I am grateful to know he's finally facing the consequences of his action and there's some justice in the world. My father, she went on to say again that he is a bully and he's been this way her whole life. Right. She even, there were some vague things where she said that he abused her as a child, but it couldn't really find much more information on that. In 2009, uh, prosecutors, prosecutors indicated that they were going to ask the grand jury to consider adding even more charges because more victims started coming forward when this case came out. It's kind of similar, I guess, to the Harvey Weinstein or whatever, where once it broke, then all these other people were like, this happened to me too. I mean, that's very common. very common. At this time, Nick left Boulder to, I think, go back with his dad, but there's also this thing about him got into he got into a huge argument with his dad because his dad did find out that he had been in contact with his sister and mom again and cut him off from his trust fund so he had no money so he goes back to go with his dad in addition to all of this shit going down with the criminal charges joe was in financial trouble as well he had borrowed money from a friend to get money for bail because his bail was increased to 1.25 million after all of these additional charges yeah. came down. So he had to um, put up his apartment as collateral and get like that money from a rich right. friend of his. So he was struggling with money as well. Another, th- another sort of financial thing that was happening at the time, he was suing a 22-year-old who was his ex-fiance, and he claimed that he had spent $2 million on her before learning that she was already married. So Can that- you sue someone for that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, she sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> Can you sue for being finessed? I, I, he's tried. He tried to. Uh, he tried it. Um, so he's a mess at this time and all his fucking bullshit is catching up with him. Yay. <laughs> this is good. Beauty should be good for you. And that's why we're excited to tell you about Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding a light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use daily. Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. So what do we mean by clean? Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter's formulations. They call this their never list. You can learn more at beautycounter.com, where you're also going to want to check out their incredible products. Best of all, if you're a new customer and you order through March 15th, you'll get free shipping on your order of $100 or more when you use the code HOLLYWOOD. Once again, to get free shipping on your order of $100 or more, go to beautycounter.com and use the code HOLLYWOOD. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, getting out of it is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high interest credit card debt. I know firsthand that there's nothing more frustrating than trying to pay something down and your payments are pretty much just paying off the interest. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. The best part? Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. 
Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top-ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash Hollywood to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash Hollywood. Okay, so this is all happening, you know, at the end of December 2009 and, and the beginning of 2010. Yeah. So his son comes back after that semester, you know, so summer break or whatever. They had sort of made up at that point. And then Joe re- restored Nick's um, trust fund. So he had money again. He's in the city with his dad. Uh, and then he finally had some money to get his own apartment. He got, a, he got an apartment in the East Village. He had broken up with his college girlfriend, and he his friends convinced him to go out one night. It was uh, while he was out that night that he met a woman named Sylvie Cachet. Now, when they met that night, he they kind of bonded right away, even though he was young. She was like almost 10 years older than him. She mm-hmm. was like in her early 30s, and he's like 20. They ended up talking for hours. She was a fashion designer, and she was actually really successful, but had recently uh, lost her company because it was after the financial crash and backers pulled right. out. So she was now working as a head designer for Ann Cole Collection. She designed swimwear, but she was really ambitious and really successful, um, sort of the opposite of of Nick. Nick also revealed to her all of the stuff about his dad and what he was going through with the trial, his whole childhood. So they really bonded that night over like they're, they're kind of like horrible, right? Whatever. Um, she kind of took him as a sensitive guy who was maybe a little sad. And, uh, she was like the type who loved taking care of people. So it was like a match made in hell. Uh, I'll fix him. I haven't ever done anything like this. (laughs) In their first month together, he said that he loved her and wanted to marry her, which is never a good sign in my mind. No. And Amanda was kind of happy. They did have some kind of weird chemistry, even though they had so many differences. Like, as I said before, Sylvie was like ambitious and she was like a hard worker and she was really trying to get her business back together. Uh, And he was basically a college dropout who slept all day and smoked pot all day and was partying at night. Yeah. Uh, Their friends... Her friends described him as nice but aimless, and both of their friends were kind of like, we don't get them What's together. What's going on? Right. So on their first date, because that was when I had them talking, that was like when they met. So then they kind of set up a date, uh, and that was where they really kind of bonded because they took her two dogs for a walk. That night, one of the dogs ran into traffic, and and Nick really kind of took took control of this situation. He got them into a taxi, took them, took her to like an all night vet. Uh, oh, really, the dog got hit. The dog got hit. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, and the dog ended up having to be put to sleep that night. Uh, so he was really with her that night. And that also kind of bonded that trauma her, bonded them, bonded them together. But as I said, this was not a good relationship. They were fighting constantly. And like his dad, even with a girlfriend, he was still cheating on her with sex workers and she would find, uh, text and things and, and find out that he had cheated on her, her with these women and she didn't like it. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't like that either. <laughs> yeah. So in November, it was at, in November in the fall, she kept saying to her friends, I swear I'm going to stop this relationship, but she kept dragging it out. 
how we that, all know how that goes. Right. So in December uh, of 2010, on December 8th, actually, they were still going on, even though she had promised her friends that she was going to end this relationship. They had had a big fight the day before, and on the 8th, um, Nick met her at her apartment. He later said that they rented a movie, had sex, and then had an argument once again over this letter of apology he had sent her the previous day. And she obviously was like, I think it was for having sex with another sex worker, and she was like not buying it. But then she, you know, as we all do, (laughs) you still have sex with them the next day. Totally. Yeah, come on. He claims that he gave her a Xanax that night, and at some point, during their evening together, he knocked a candle over and set her bed on fire. What? He had to uh, extinguish the flames, but because of the smell and the sheets were all fucked up, they ended up going to Soho House where um, uh, Sylvie was a member uh, and got a room. They got a hotel room for the night, basically. Okay. So video surveillance shows um, them arriving a little after midnight. And she was at this point drowsy and medicated because she had taken, she'd taken the Xanax. She had taken a Xanax and she might've been on some other medication as well, like a prescribed medication. Uh-huh. While Brooks was actually filling out the paperwork to get the room, a woman, um, escorted, uh, her up to the, the room. And, and I've seen the surveillance video of this. She is really stumbling, like hitting the wall. And the woman Whoa. actually has to guide her, like hold her hand and walk her to the room. So she was really, that medicine was like kicking in, I think. Um, So Nick finishes checking in and then he meets uh, Sylvie in the room. And then that same staffer, I'm going to get into more of her testimony later, reported hearing them fighting or hearing some yelling coming from the room. At 2.18 a.m. that night, the cameras capture Nicholas leaving Soho House. And it was shortly after that, a room on the fourth floor reported that water was leaking through their ceiling. Now, Nick, Later, we'll say that he left Sylvie, who wanted to take a bath, and he went upstairs to eat at the lounge. There he met a man, like a stranger, and then they ended up going to a bar called Employees Only afterwards, and then went back to the man's house where they did cocaine. According to authorities, all of that checks out with them, except for one detail. At some point, they believe that night that he took Sylvie by the neck, forced her wearing her underwear, like she was wearing underwear and a a turtleneck. He strangled her and he put her body in this bathtub of water where she eventually ended up drowning. As I said before, there was a report of the water leaking. That's because the water in the tub was overflowing from the bathtub. Like the water was left on and she was in this bathtub. Um, He just turned it on and bounced? Well, we're going to get into that. (laughs) Uh, So she was found submerged face up in this bathtub and that was about 3 a.m so like less than 45 minutes after the camera sees him leaving she was found by hotel personnel i believe they they found her and then immediately called the police so the police show up shortly after this Uh, this is like testimony from the cops that is from this um 48 hours i saw their names are robert Mueller and tommy jones and they were the first cops or the first detectives on the scene when they came in, the first thing they saw was an empty bottle of pills on the dresser. Yeah. But their first red flag was the fact that she's in this tub, basically dressed, like wearing a turtleneck. It wasn't like someone had taken a bath, right? right. She's dressed in this bath. And unless you're Mariah Carey, you don't go into the bath <laughs> wearing clothes. <laughs> wearing clothes. Um, sorry, but I will just never live. I, I always will have to remember that Mariah Carey episode of Cribs. It was it's iconic. time. Yeah, it's a classic. And we don't tolerate Mariah slander. So if you think about writing right. something on our friend group <laughs> that you don't like Mariah Carey, 
Please no, don't. No, we love her. I actually love mm-hmm. Mariah Carey, so I'll I be very offended if you do that. So according to the detectives, they walk into the room. They see her in the tub, submerged, uh, or she's dressed in a black turtleneck and panties. And she also has a Rolex watch on her wrist, which is also something you probably don't take a bath in. Right. Um, they also noted that she had bruising on her neck. They described them as light-colored marks, but there were marks that looked like they were caused from choking. She also had a cut inside of her lip, uh, which they speculate may have been caused when someone takes their hand and puts it over your mouth, like when they're holding you right. and you're struggling, that that was possibly how that uh, came about. At some point, they found out that she did check in with someone, and that person was nowhere to be seen. So they were obviously immediately like interested in like where the fuck is the person yeah. who was with her. At some point around 5.30 a.m. on the, now this is December 9th, this is already cordoned off as a crime scene, by the way, this room and like within the hotel, there's like a police activity, obviously. One of the night managers recognized him when he walked in and immediately pointed him out to the police officer saying, hey, that's the guy. So So he shows, he 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 walks back in at 5.30 a.m. Wow. So um, the night manager says to Nick, something happened to your girlfriend and his reaction, according to this night manager, was weird. It wasn't like someone, he just heard something about someone he just, you know, lost that was very close to him. He seemed completely blank, according to this guy. He also, according to Texas, detectives appeared to be very inebriated. His eyes were bloodshot and he smelled like alcohol and was slurring his words. So police brought Nick back to the precinct to question him, obviously, and they wanted to know where he had been all night and what had happened uh, to Sylvie up until that point. He actually was, like, during the interview, seemed so, like, incoherent and tired that they actually let him take a nap before questioning him. (laughs) Like, they let him lie lie down for a second before questioning him. So he lies down and takes, like, a little rest, I guess, and then they wake him up to question him. So... It was at this point he answered some questions and he wrote a detailed statement for the police of what exactly had happened up that night. So he um, mentioned, you know, being at her apartment and he mentioned the sex again. After the sex, he said he wanted to take a shower. And when he came out of the shower, the bed had been on fire. So now it's like he's not even saying he did the candle thing. Once the candle fire happened, he said Sylvie was sound asleep and that he woke her up with the bed the can't like the bed burning kind of like so he's almost like saying i you know saved her i saved her yeah. life uh and he he claims that she was sleeping because she had already taken medication and that he actually had to really wake her up right when this fire is happening uh they decided to leave the apartment as i mentioned before and go to soho house where they were going to get a room i mentioned that you we, we have all of this on tape they're arriving he has her pillow he fills out the paperwork and the woman oops sorry and then the woman walks her up to her room. He says when they went up to the room, Sylvie said, I want to take a bath, which seems like an odd thing to say if you're that drowsy when you're walking to the room that you would want to take a bath, right? When she said that, that was when Nick was like, well, I'm kind of wide awake right now. I'm going to go to the hotel restaurant and get some food and drinks and go out for a while. And then according to him, he said, the next thing I know, I go back to the hotel and you know, all the police were there. So that's his sort of story. Obviously, they have this surveillance equipment. And because Soho House is like an exclusive. You have they to have, be a member. And it's like celebrities, like really rich people. They have a ton of security. So there's just like no way his every step there has, it's has been, been recorded. recorded. 
the woman who escorted Sylvie to her room is named Kristen Stevens, and she now gives a more detailed sort of description of what happened when she escorted Sylvie to the room. She said she immediately noticed that there was tension between the two of them, and that when she walked Sylvie up to the room, she told um, Kristen that the fire started because Nick had put the candles on and she started bitching about him being 10 years younger than him. Like, who the fuck puts candles on the headboard? Blah, 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 blah. And so, she also, so, so Sylvie's venting to this Yeah, she's woman. venting. And then she says, now this pillow is all that I have left of my $3,000 bed. And part of me was like, $3,000? <laughs> I need a breakdown of this bed. Like, I want a $3,000 I know. Bed. I was like, what? Like... Because you'd think the sheets would just be ruined, like the bed was ruined. I know that's not really the crime here. I'm sorry. Stevens also describes Sylvie as being very uh, exhausted and stumbling in the hallway as well. Um, and she did say to uh, Sylvie did say to Stevens, "I've already taken my sleeping pills for tonight. This is why I'm this way right now." So according to the woman, she left Sylvie in her bed, and Sylvie was going to sleep. There was not no mention of a bath. Taking a bath, right? So at some point, a little bit later, she said that she passed Sylvie's room and that she heard the yelling. So she said it sounded like the two of them were arguing. And it was so bad, in fact, that she actually got a pass key and went into the room next door to Sylvie's and pressed her ear against the wall to listen. At that point, she said something that's kind of chilling, like the argument stopped very suddenly and it was just completely quiet with no like reason why. Right. Uh, in this interview for the 24 hours, uh, she she does feel very guilty that she didn't go knock on the hours? door. 48 uh, well, hours? This interview I saw with her on this case was on 48 hours, yeah, whatever, the CBS is. show. So she's crying, and she's like, I should have checked. But obviously, no one would think something like that would happen. Um, so she said she was there a minute and a half, and then it was the absolute silence, not even the shuffling of feet or whispering, nothing. It was just completely dead silent. So on surveillance camera, you see Nick coming and going from the room numerous times before he kind of left at that 218 uh, period. It seemed like he's kind of pacing. He's like biting his nails. Uh, And then he does go to the hotel restaurant. Like all of that stuff is true. Like he goes to the restaurant, meets that guy and goes to the bar. And that guy was a jazz musician, by the way. Um, So I don't know. Party time in New York City, I guess. I love that the bar was called Employees Only. I don't know why it seems really <laughs> stupid to me. Um, so he did have drinks and did cocaine. And so he's kind of out partying, right? Right. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, the water leak happened. And that's when they found the body. And there's, the whole thing started falling apart. By the end of the next day, Nick Brooks is under arrest for Sylvie's murder. Right. The detectives also said that at some point during that day, he asked them, well, how much will I get for this? You know, how much will I get for this? When he said, how much time can I get for this? The police's reaction was, we kind of just looked at each other. We were a little shocked. He, at this point, it's like early 2011. He's basically under arrest now for this this woman's murder. Uh, his friends and family are all shocked. And of course it's all the like, you know, he wouldn't do this just because he was getting dumped. He's a good guy. Like right. blah, 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 blah. Like the classic, right. his sister stand was standing by him completely saying this is impossible. He couldn't do this in January. Uh, he is arraigned and he pleads not guilty to second degree murder. Sylvie's brother is there at the courthouse and he speaks, um, to the cameras or to the news saying, you know, that Nick is a horrible individual. He has no respect for anyone at all or the law or my sister's life or me and my family. 
And of course, the other side is like, he's a wonderful young man. He was a freshman at university. I mean, it's just like bring up his college. Yeah, he's just a college student. One person who is not there supporting his son is Joseph Brooks. Uh, He did not attend his son's arraignment. At that time, an additional 12 more victims of his had come forward. Nicholas now is being represented by the same attorney as his dad. So it's a real shit show of a family. Right. Okay. So as I mentioned before, in addition to all of these charges, um, Joseph Brooks is under deep financial strain, and he's about to lose his apartment. Uh, I mentioned he had borrowed money from an investor and put his apartment up as collateral, collateral. That guy was threatening to take his apartment at this point if he didn't get paid. He had had enough of this bullshit. I mean, I'm sure having a guy on trial for all of this was probably not the best right. uh, situation if you've loaned someone $2.4 million. So despite all of the charges against him, Brooks is continuing to see a st- steady stream of call girls. At some point during the last year, he has also had a second stroke, and that doesn't stop him from continuing down this path, right? Unbelievable. Uh, one of his neighbors said, I'd see beautiful women leaving his apartment and say, I'm better looking than him. <laughs> well, you're not paying for it. So <laughs> the, the Madam Kristen Davis she says, I, I did ban him, but then he would come back and beg and he would apologize for his bad behavior and say, it will never happen again. So I'd give him another chance and he'd be okay for two or three appointments and then it would go bad again. So she kind of is also sort of enabling his bad behavior, I think. So in the home on East 63rd Street, the same home that he held all the auditions where he yeah. did all of the sexual assaults and uh, all of that horrible stuff, on May 23rd, 2011, Joseph Brooks committed suicide by donning a helium hood, which is also known as an exit bag. What is that? Have you heard of that? I'm going to get into it. (laughs) Because I was like, what the fuck? That is wild. Um, One of Brooks's friends was supposed to have lunch with him and went to his 15th floor apartment around 1230 p.m. Brooks had told the doorman that he was expecting this male pal for lunch and that the doorman would let him up. So he kind of arranged for that in uh, advance. The friend found Brooks's door unlocked and discovered him completely limp, fully clothed, and sprawled on the couch in the den where there was also a suicide note. Brooks's head was encased in a dry cleaning bag that had a tube attached to it to a helium gas tank that was nearby, and a towel was wrapped around his head and neck to seal the bag. Whoa. <laughs> now, this is actually, if you, if you search for online, online for like a euthanasia or how-tos, this is like what will come up as like the quickest, most painless way to kill yourself. So he obviously researched like what to do um, as far as that goes. He, as I said before, he did leave a really long suicide note. And in the note, he was sort of adamant that he did this not because of the charges, because that's something he would be acquitted of. He did it because of his health and because of the financial stress. One of his neighbors described seeing him and and saying that he did look like walking death and that he was like a a skeleton. Another neighbor also said that he had looked really bad the the previous few days, even though he still had these gorgeous girls still streaming into the house, like up to almost like the last week before he killed himself. The suicide note was described as rambling. I mentioned he complained about his health. He complained about the woman who he said was physically abusing him and taking his money. That's the one, the 22 year old who was actually right, married. Right. So he was still kind of carrying on with her in some kind of way. He was, like I said before, he really stressed the fact that he would have been acquitted of all the rape charges. 
and the neighbor said he was facing serious charges and had nothing to live for. I'd have done the same thing. I love these neighbors. They're all like real New Yorkers. Like, here, let me tell you. <laughs> he said, I saw him yesterday. He looked like walking death. Oh, I said this already. Like the skeleton. Uh, and a worker at a nearby restaurant said that he could barely even eat toast anymore. So I do believe, I mean, I've seen pictures of him. He was not well. Like he looked really old and sick. Um, Susan Carton, who is the lawyer for Sylvie's family, said that she was hoping he had left behind an apology to the victims. And she said it was sad that these women would never receive justice now, but hopefully the Cachet family will get justice. Right. And she described it as it's just a web of perversion in that family. Um, after he died, Debbie Boone did release a statement also. On what? <laughs> I know. So she said she's had... She was saddened to hear of the horrible tragedy surrounding Joe Brooks and his family. Um, and then she like stresses that her only association with him was a couple hours in the studio uh, recording this beautiful song, which I will continue to sing proudly and hope that people will be able to separate the song from his severely troubled life. It's like I Debbie. Won't. Now it's like now is not the time, Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> come on, like this is like you're worried about being able to sing your song. Like, come on. Desi, it's her one song. It's her one song. I get it. So three days after he dies, the assistant actually pled guilty to 10 counts of criminal facilitation. So there is that. Okay. So in his will, this is not surprising. He kind of pulled a, um, what's it called? What's her name? Oh my God. Joan Crawford. Like he disinherited all his kids, but it wasn't like I forgot to put you in. He was like, I am specifically not giving my kids anything. He actually left it to his hot personal trainer. It was like, I was like, what were you personal training? I'm sorry. So he had some personal trainer who like he left everything to. And I don't even know if it was that much money, but he did sort of disinherit his four children. Okay. So we still have Nick to deal with though. He didn't kill himself. His trial began in 2013, which is pretty, pretty far after the fact, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's like two years. Um, so was he in jail this whole time? Yeah. He was in Rikers. Okay, so he didn't have bail. No, he didn't have bail. So as I said, Amanda defended her brother from the start, and she sort of continued doing that during the trial, obviously. And this is where we're going to start to see, I'm going to go into a little bit about what their defense of the situation was and what they say happened. So according to the sister, he really loved her. She brings up the fire, saying that if he wanted her dead, he could have just let her die in this house fire and like had left her there. Uh, She also goes on to say that she didn't think Sylvie was sober at the time of her death and that she had a lot of drugs in her assistant, uh, in her system. And then she pointed to the, the tapes showing her not even being able to really walk unassisted to unassisted to her room. She also blamed her father's troubles as sort of sensationalizing her brother's case. Like right. that maybe it wouldn't have gotten as much attention or maybe he would have gotten off because of the connection. He seemed more suspect, which I don't really buy. She also goes into something that will play a bigger role, that they had rough sex uh, the night, and that was how the bruises on her neck that the police saw had happened. All this time, she's like, I don't want to disparage the victim, blah, 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 but they had, she's like, you know, at the same time, she's going to defend her brother. It's kind of similar to um, when we talked about Fatty Arbuckle. Right. It's like, you don't want to do that and look bad, but if you feel like that's the story, I guess, I don't know. It's tricky, right? So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having rough sex. Uh, no. Too. So, as long as it's consensual. As long as it's consensual, right. You know, they did. he did say that he had sex, but he did never say that it was rough in the initial um, 
reporting. He just said we had sex. That's not I don't, surprising. That he, I don't think that's surprising right. either, but people did try to make hay of it. Like, well, why didn't he say we had rough sex? And it's like, well, if he did, you probably would have been like, oh, you're trying to like make up for the right. bruises. According to the defense, she goes into the bathroom, in, in into the bath, in this drug state, that because she was drugged, she passed out and slipped under the water, kind of like a Whitney Houston situation. And didn't turn the faucet off. Right. So she runs this bath. I mean, that doesn't explain all of the clothes and everything else, but that was sort of their working theory. Um, but Sylvie did not have illegal drugs or alcohol in her system. She was tested for all of that kind of stuff, obviously. She did have some sleeping medication and prescription medications that she took for fibromyalgia. According to the district attorney at the time, Cy Vance, who was actually, I think, still the district attorney or something, because he's in the, I think he was mentioned in the Harvey Weinstein. He said there's no evidence that Sylvie participated in rough sex that night, but he said that her injuries suggest she was choked violently and then forced under the water. The bruising around her neck to him is clearly evidence of strangulation, and the fact that her lungs had twice their ordinary weight indicated that she was put into the tub alive and still breathing, but probably unable to you know be conscious uh so i mean it does seem like well i don't know like there could, could she be have slipped could she have i mean it's not like completely out of the norm but like the fact that she had clothes on does seem like how did that happen right um the other sort of damning evidence uh according to vance is that that the security video showing him leaving like right when the call complained about the water leaking like it was within minutes of each other yeah so it's like you were in that room most likely when that water started happening like he claims he left before she was in the bath or taking a bath or that's why he left that she was going to do this but clearly like the timing of it meant that he was in that by the time water is going to flow and it takes a leaking, while to it's fill take up a, a tub right and for it to start leaking right down to the next level right probably be even more time so i mean all of the cops and the prosecutors believe he was in the room when that tub was on uh and that it started sort of overflowing while he was probably still there and and just kind of left out i mean he might have been drunk too at that point another sort of thing that sylvie's friends described was that nick was sort of a sociopath as far as his sexual relations with sylvie was like I saw on this 20, uh, 48 hours, she had made a list for him of like a to-do list, like wake up at 10, don't sleep all day, like whatever. And one of them was after we have sex, hold me, tell me nice things. Like it was to that point where she had to teach him how to be a human being almost. Whoa. And her friends kind of brought that up and talked about how detached he was. And this was like an upsetting thing for Sylvie because he also was always demanding that they have porn sex. Like, or what she described as porn sex. So I feel like maybe he was doing this or fantasizing about certain things and trying to get her to do things she didn't want to. Uh, I don't know if it has anything to do with her death, but it was something that her friend sort of brought up in the aftermath to kind of show that he, about his character. Now, her brother, Patrick, he has another thing that he thinks may have been what led to her death. She, he said that shortly before this happened, he was contacted by her sister, his sister, saying that she thought someone was stealing from her. And then through her like personal effects, when he was looking through them after she died, he found ATM statements that were like circled by her, sort of trying to identify which ATM withdrawals were fraudulent. And he thinks that overall that um, Nick 
stole about $30,000 wow. from her account. I think I've already mentioned that she had recently also found out he had been with a sex worker again slightly uh, a few weeks before that. So she also has found out about this money yeah. or she's suspicious about it. Um, one of the last text messages she got from a friend was, I know you're sleeping, but what a night. Uh, and then she also, the police also have an evidence, an evidence, another message that Sylvie sent to Nick and the prosecutors call it the FU email. So this is an email she sent to Nick like a day before this happened. Nick, for the past six months, I have supported you financially and emotionally. The fact you cheated on me makes me sick and you will fucking pay. I am speaking with a credit card company and the police and I am going to tell them I never allowed you to use my card. I don't care. Have fun in jail. So that's like, I saw the email uh, and like on one of the news stories I saw, like this is something she literally sent him a few days before. So of course, Nick's defense is like, well, I mean, clearly this threat meant nothing because she saw him the next day, which is like so dismissive of like what women are dealing with when oh they're in a relationship God. with someone they're scared of right. maybe. Right. Um, and they had a volatile relationship beyond just this cheating and whatever. Right. So that's kind of basically what the defense was saying. She kind of went into the bathtub accidentally and, and, and drowned all of Whitney Houston. And she willingly went yeah, back with Yeah, it was all of this kind of stuff. Right. 56 prosecution witnesses testified against Nick. They only called one witness. The defense. What? Yeah. A former New Wait, York... Wait, the defense or the prosecution? The defense only called one witness. Oh, wow. A former New York medical examiner, and he basically came on to say she died from prescription pills and accidentally okay. drowning. So that was his point. And obviously, you know, he also testified that there were other ways that she could have gotten their injuries. They weren't allowed to bring up the rough sex theory, though. Uh, okay. But they kind of tried to do that, whatever, lawyerly hinting at the idea of it, which will come up in a second. The defense was pretty thin. There really wasn't anything solid that they yeah. could point to because um, he basically admits to being there. And, like, you can see everything. It's on camera yeah. that he was pacing around. Even, like... One, another thing that the defense tries to use is actually that the fact that he came back to the Soho house shows that he hadn't killed her because why would you return to the scene of the crime kind right. of thing? And then, of course, the prosecution says, well, maybe that's part of his plan to look innocent. Hey, like, what happened? Why would I come back if I had done this horrible thing? I would have, you know, got my trust fund and tried to leave the scene. I would never would have returned. He probably was expecting to come back, quote unquote, find her. Right. And call the police. Right. He didn't necessarily know that the police would have found. He wouldn't maybe expect the, the leaking or whatever. Right. The jury uh, takes the case at that point. Uh, the, the trial was about five weeks. So they have all this testimony to go through. And, you know, her family was like, this is open shut. Um, so they were kind of surprised that it was taking a bit long. One thing the jury kept asking for is they wanted to hear more about the sex life and the and the rough sex. So the judge kept giving them instructions that they could not consider that as part of the evidence because it was never um, submitted as evidence right. and it was like inadmissible. Three days after they went to uh, whatever, deliberate. deliberate, the jury returned with a verdict and found Nicholas Brooks guilty of second degree murder and he was sentenced to 25 years to life. Actually, uh, in March of this year, he his uh, his final appeal was um, rejected. 
he had oh. one more appeal and it was rejected in the New York state, uh, court of appellates declared that there was just overwhelming evidence that he was guilty of strangling and ground and drowning his girlfriend. Right. The family of Sylvie actually did get a two point uh, a $12.5 million judgment in a civil wrongful death suit. Wow. But obviously they're not able to get anything because he Where's supposedly doesn't have money, even though they believe he's getting royalty checks still from the estate of his father. I guess they can't prove it. Yeah, that's it. So this is like like father, like son, basically treating women as kind of disposable. Well, he lived with his dad. He saw him treat women and that way his whole life. Right. I mean, it was interesting watching, because I read a lot of stories on this before I saw that 48 hours um, whatever it's called, mystery, 48 hours mystery. And it was sort of like, oh, this piece of shit, like whatever. And then when you see his side of the family, it is definitely one of those shows where you're like, oh no, he did it. And then you're like, well, maybe he did. <laughs> you go back and forth like right. a bunch of times because right. you're like, I don't know. like, Did he? Yeah, because the family is so convincing and it is just maybe like, do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's quite clear he did it probably or was negligent in some way, but there was just enough where you're like, I don't know, like it's possible, but I, right. you know, I mean, because yeah. And obviously just because your family member is a piece of shit or you're raised right. by a piece of shit doesn't mean you're going to be a piece of shit. And I just buy the fact that he was maybe, I mean, I hate saying someone like who murders someone isn't a bad person, but you can see like how this person was maybe just raised without empathy. Like he didn't know how to feel or do you know what I mean? Like, or he saw well, male a combination with of things. Because uh, he didn't really have a history of treating women poorly. Like, right. Uh, but he had a fucked up relationship with women, clearly. Like his, he was lied to his whole life about his mom. And uh, clearly his dad was just a toxic influence on his right. life. And right. I, I do feel like his dad has a lot to do with what happened. Just by the way he raised him. Right. In a really fucked up way. <sighs> I mean, he's still responsible. I'm not excusing him. Of course, yeah. But yeah, isn't that a crazy story? I had no (laughs) idea. That is wild, Desi. Because that that story, I mean, I just, I mean, I don't love it, but it's like to be such a corny fucking song and have this dark, I mean, two dark things attached to it is insane to me, right? Right. It's wild. Because that is like the corniest song of all time. Right. And and also because, you know, when Debbie did it, he always said like it's a love song, but for her it was like a song. It was towards a Jesus the Lord. song. It's like she's That's singing this to God. Yeah, so it's like you still want to sing this song to Jesus? Come on. I mean, oh. I love it now. Like it's it, now that it has a darkness to it. Right. It's uh even creepier. Totally. But oh yeah, God, so that's, that's a crazy. I love it. I mean, I it's awful, but like I love. I love hearing a case that I had no, I didn't look up anything this week. I didn't. You know what I remember? I think I wasn't really following the trial when I wrote that Facebook status, but I think I had heard the suicide. Oh. And I was like, that's an insane suicide story. Like, I don't think I had ever heard of that technique or method before. And I was just like, that is just like. It's wild. I've never heard of it. (laughs) I've never heard of it either. Um, Okay, so so we will be taking the next week off because I will be on my bicycle ride. I'm riding 545 miles from San Francisco down to Los Angeles on June 3rd through the 9th. So I will not be here to record our show. And our show won't be up until that following Tuesday. Oh, wait. No, I'll be back. It'll be up Monday. Yeah. 
I'm going to be very delirious when I'm doing our story. Okay. And it'll be fun. It's going to be a great show. I cannot wait for this next. Okay. To come back and do the next episode we're going to do. Cool. So thanks, Des. We'll okay. see you guys not next week, but the week after. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> I have a secret. I wore the wrong foundation for years. Then I discovered Il Maquillage, the boldest new brand in beauty. With 20,000 five-star reviews and 50 shades of flawless coverage, their Woke Up Like This foundation is a bestseller for a reason. It's tough buying foundation online, but their Power Match quiz matched me perfectly. And with Try Before You Buy, you can try your shade free for 14 days. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz.